way home. There's nothing to fight for. There's no more honor. Come to think of it, the only honorable thing to do is quiet. here on the final episode of Let's Read for Albert Camus' The Fall. And yeah, this is it. We made it. We are about to finish uh, this entire novel. So that's really, really exciting. And to any of you guys who have made it this far, like truly hats off. I am kind of in a little bit of disbelief, but if you have made it this far and you've enjoyed it, like I think that's awesome. I think that's amazing. And like you're just a really interesting and cool person as far as I'm concerned. So hats off to you. Um, I think I'll have a bit of an extended preamble here. Um, I've got a few items that I want to go through. The first being I'm probably going to do this again. This is not going to be the last less read, that's for sure. I am thinking out loud about books to do next. I think um, Uh, books that are going to lend themselves well to something like this are short novels. Um, I'm obviously not going to make it through an entire tome, so they're going to have to be short and brief. And so a few of the ones that come to mind are Dostoevsky's Notes from the Underground. Um, That might be a little bit too samey to the fall because, again, it's just this single rambling man, the underground man, talking and talking. So it might be interesting, but maybe I should switch it up a little bit. Um, The other one that came to mind would be maybe Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning, another book that's amazing, but I have always thought of this to be a fiction project, not necessarily a book, uh, a podcast for reading nonfiction, but it might be an interesting one to talk about. But I think the one that I'm edging towards the most is a book by Milan Kundera, one of my other favorite authors, um, and it's called Slowness. And I just think that's weirdly appropriate for right now where all of our lives have kind of slowed down. And this is a great book that gives you some guidance about what we are to do when things find themselves slowing down. So I think that might be the one so if you're interested at all in that go ahead and check out it on wikipedia or goodreads and um yeah maybe soon enough you'll see another podcast show up in your feed for episode one of that um a couple of other notes i actually went back and listened to one of the episodes and listened to my own reading and though i think i do uh, an okay job of reading it's a really difficult book that is totally not lost on me the book is incredibly difficult to follow and i can only imagine trying to do something else uh and listen along at the same time you're gonna get lost so quickly so the next book i think that's front of mind for me i want it to be a little bit more of a digestible easy to understand book because yeah the fall is is quite difficult so that's kind of my own review of my own reading Um, the other thing that I want to mention here is just a huge, huge shout out to the music of the podcast. The music I think has been such a treat. 
I was able to find some great songs on the Free Music Archive, so I think I wasn't really sure what song to put for the final episode of this, so I think I'm going to use all three of the songs we've used throughout the series, but huge shout out to the music. I've put links to all of the artist pages in every set of show notes, so if you're into it at all, like go support them. Obviously, I downloaded it totally free, and so I want to make sure I'm giving full credit to these artists who have produced some pretty pretty cool songs. Um, and then the last thing that I want to talk about in terms of housekeeping is this funny thing happened where one of my favorite podcasts, the guy's name is Chris Ryan. He has a podcast called Tangentially Speaking. I think it's an amazing podcast, and a lot of the inspiration for this came from him because I think he's so talented in his ability to just hop in front of a mic by himself and produce an hour of interesting content. So I just love listening to this one hour that he does. It's called Aroma, ranting out my ass. And I always wanted to recreate that in some way, and this is my version of it. And anyways, the reason I'm telling you this is that the funniest thing happened the day that the fourth or fifth episode of this dropped. I got a notification on my phone, and tangentially speaking, had dropped a new episode of the podcast, Chris Ryan, and the episode was called What Makes This Book Great? And (laughs) what he does is he talks for a little bit. Uh, It's a brand new podcast experiment for him. Then he decides to read a short story out loud on the podcast, and then he discusses at the end of it what makes this short story great. And I just couldn't believe it. Like, here I have one of my podcast inspirations, one of these people that I look up to and think is so uh, incredible and talented. And, you know, at the same time, here we are doing almost an identical audio project um, without knowing anything about one another's. I, I just thought that was this hilarious coincidence. It made me feel very strangely honored to be kind of in the same realm or same zone as someone who I admire so much. So I just wanted to mention it as a funny, crazy story. Uh, So if you guys are at all interested, like go check out his podcast. His podcast is a hell of a lot better than mine. That's for sure. But, um, you know, he's got a PhD. So I think the the bar is set a little bit higher. But uh, I wanted to share that. I think that was pretty great. And it's just pretty cool that both of us are here celebrating um, the, the beauty of oral culture where we can all just kind of take a step back and listen to some incredible storytelling. So, uh, big thank you to Chris Ryan and, um, thank you for all that you do in your podcast and I'm going to continue to operate in your shadow. So I think that's it. I think that we've got through the majority of the housekeeping items now, Um, I think the final thing to note here is we're going to read the final chapter. I'm going to talk about the final chapter, but um, the discussion is probably going to be a little bit about the final chapter and then also about the book as a whole. I don't think it was appropriate for me to release an entire episode about an entire book review. So the discussion section of this chapter is going to be chapter analysis plus entire book analysis. So like I said, if you're interested, go ahead, look at the show notes, and you can just skip over the reading part and go straight to the discussion. Totally understand. Otherwise, I think that's it. Uh, It's a bit of a longer chapter, so um, hold on to your hats. Let's uh, sit back and dive into chapter six 
of Albert Camus' The Fall. to be in bed when you arrive. It's nothing, just a little fever that I'm treating with gin. I'm accustomed to these attacks. Malaria, I think, that I caught at the time I was a pope. No, I'm only half joking. I know what you're thinking. It's very hard to disentangle the true from the false in what I'm saying. I admit you are right. I myself. You see, a person I knew used to divide human beings into three categories. Those who prefer having nothing to hide rather than being obliged to lie. Those who prefer lying to having nothing to hide. And finally, those who like both lying and the hidden. I'll let you choose the pigeonhole that suits me. But what do I care? Don't lies eventually lead to the truth? And don't all my stories, true or false, tend towards the same conclusion? Don't they all have the same meaning? So what does it matter whether they are true or false if, in both cases, they are significant of what I have been and of what I am? Sometimes it is easier to see clearly into the liar than into the man who tells the truth. Truth, like light, blinds. Falsehood, on the contrary, is a beautiful twilight that enhances every object. Well, make of it what you will, but I was named Pope in a prison camp. Sit down, please. You are examining this room. Bare, to be sure, but clean. A Vermeer, without furniture or copper pots. Without books either, for I gave up reading some time ago. At one time, my house was full of half-read books. That's just as disgusting as those people who cut a piece of off a foie gras and have the rest thrown out. Anyway, I have ceased to like anything but confessions and authors of confessions write especially to avoid confessing, to tell nothing of what they know. When they claim to get the painful admissions, you have to watch out, for they are about to dress the corpse. Believe me, I know what I'm talking about. So I put a stop to it. No more books. No more useless objects either. The bare necessities, cleaned and polished like a coffin. Besides, these Dutch beds, so hard with their inoculate sheets, one dies in them as if already wrapped in a shroud, embalmed in purity. You are curious to know my pontifical adventures? Nothing out of the ordinary, you know. Shall I have the strength to tell you of them? Yes, the fever is going down. It was also long ago. It was in Africa where, thanks to a certain Rommel, war was raging. I wasn't involved in it. No, don't worry. I had already dodged the one in Europe. Mobilized, of course, but I never saw action. In a way, I regret it. Maybe that would have changed many things. The French army didn't need me on the front. It merely asked me to take part in the retreat. A little later, I got back to Paris and the Germans. I was tempted by the resistance, about which people were beginning to talk just about the time I discovered I was patriotic. You were smiling? You were wrong. I made my discovery on a subway platform at the Châtelet station. A dog had strayed into the labyrinth of passageways. 
big, wiry-haired, one-ear-cocked, eyes laughing. He was cavorting and sniffing the passing legs. I have a very old and faithful attachment for dogs. I like them because they always forgive. I called this one, who hesitated, obviously one over, wagging his tail enthusiastically a few yards ahead of me. Just then, a young German soldier, who was walking briskly, passed me. Having reached the dog, he caressed the shaggy head. Without hesitating, the animal fell in step with the same enthusiasm and disappeared with him. From the resentment and the sort of rage I felt against the German soldier, it was clear to me that my reaction was patriotic. If the dog had followed a French civilian, I'd not even have thought of it. But on the contrary, I imagined that friendly dog as the mascot of a German regiment, and that made me fly into a rage. Hence, the test was convincing. I reached the southern zone with the intention of finding out about the resistance. But once there and having found out, I hesitated. The undertaking struck me as a little mad and, in a word, romantic. I think especially that underground action suited neither my temperament nor my preference for exposed heights. It seemed to me that I was being asked to do some weaving in a cellar for days and nights on end until some bruise should come to haul me from hiding, undo my weaving, and then drag me to another cellar to beat me to death. I admired those who indulged in such heroism of, de of the depths, but I couldn't imitate them. So I crossed over to North Africa, with the vague intention of getting to London. But in Africa, the situation was not clear. The opposing parties seemed to be equally right, and I stood aloof. I can see from your manner that I am skipping rather fast, in your opinion, over these details which have a certain significance. Well, let's say that, having judged you at your true value, I am skipping over them so that you will notice them the better. In any case, I eventually reached Tunisia, where a fond friend gave me work. That friend was a very intelligent woman who was involved in the movies. I followed her to Tunis and didn't discover her real business until the days following the Allied landing in Algeria. She was arrested that day by the Germans and I. She was arrested that day by the Germans, and I too, but without having intended it. I don't know what became of her. As for me, no harm was done me, and I realized, after considerable anguish, that it was chiefly as a security measure. I was interned near Tripoli in a camp where we suffered from thirst and destitution more than from brutality. I'll not describe it to you. We children of the mid-century don't need a diagram to imagine such places. 150 years ago, people became sentimental about lakes and forests. Today we have the lyricism of the prison cell. Hence, I'll leave it to you. You need add but a few details. The heat, the vertical sun, the flies, the sand, the lack of water. There was a young Frenchman with me who had faith. Yes, it's decidedly a fairy tale. The Dugesculin type, if you will. He had crossed over from France into Spain to go and fight. The Catholic general had interned him, and having seen that in the Franco camps the chickpeas were, if I may say so, blessed by Rome, he had developed a profound melancholy. Neither the skies of Africa where he had landed, nor the leisures of the camp had distracted him from that melancholy. But his reflections, and the sun too, had somewhat unhinged him. One day when, under a tent that seemed to drip molten lead, the ten or so of us were panting among the flies. He repeated his diatribes against the Romans, 
as he called him. He looked at us with a wild stare, his face unshaven for days. Bare to the waist and covered with sweat, he drummed with his hands on the visible keyboard of his ribs. He declared to us the need for a new pope who should live among the wretched instead of praying on a throne, and the sooner the better. He stared with wild eyes as he shook his head. Yes, he repeated, as soon as possible. Then he calmed down, suddenly and in a dull voice said that we must choose him among us. A pick complete. Then he calmed down suddenly and in a dull voice said that we must choose him among us. Pick a complete man with his vices and virtues and swear allegiance to him on the sole condition that he should agree to keep us alive in himself and in others, the community of our sufferings. Who among us, he asked, has the most failings? As a joke, I raised my hand and was the only one to do so. Okay, Jean-Baptiste will do. No, he didn't just say that because I had another name then. He declared, at least, that nominating oneself as I had done presupposed also the greatest virtue and proposed electing me. The others agreed and fun, but with a trace of seriousness all the same. The truth is that Dugesculin had impressed us. It seems to me that even I was not altogether laughing. To begin with, I considered that my little prophet was right, and then with the sun, the exhausting labor, the struggle for water, we were not up to snuff. In any case, I exercised my pontificate for several weeks with increasing seriousness. Of what did it consist? Well, I was something like a group leader or the secretary of a cell. The others, in any case, and even those who lacked faith, got into the habit of obeying me. Dugesculin was suffering. I administered his suffering. I discovered then that it was not so easy as I thought to be a pope, and I remembered this just yesterday after having given you such a scornful speech on judges, our brothers. The big problem in the camp was the water allotment. Other groups, political or secretarian, had formed, and each prisoner had favored his comrades. I was consequently led to favor mine, and this was a little concession to begin with. Even among us, I could not maintain complete equality. According to my comrades' condition, or the work they had to do, I gave an advantage to this one or that one. Such distinctions are far-reaching. You can take my word for it. But decidedly, I am tired and no longer want to think of that period. Let's just say that I closed the circle the day I drank water of a dying comrade. No, no, it wasn't Dugesclin. He was already dead, I believe, for he stinted himself too much. Besides, had he been there, out of love for him, I had resisted longer, for I loved him. Yes, I loved him, or so it seems to me. But I drank the water, that's certain, while convincing myself that the others needed more than this fellow who was going to die anyways, and that I had a duty to keep myself alive for them. Thus, Cher, empires and churches are born under the sun of death. And in order to correct some what, what I said yesterday, I am going to tell you the great idea that has come to me while telling all this, which, I'm not sure now, I may have lived or only dreamed. My great idea is that one must forgive the Pope. To begin with, he needs it more than anyone else. Secondly, that's the only way to set oneself above him. Did you close the door thoroughly? Yes? Make sure, please. Forgive me, I have the bolt complex. On the point of going to sleep, 
I can never remember whether or not I push the bolt. And every, every night I must get up to verify. One can be sure of nothing, as I've told you. Don't think that this worry about the bolt is the reaction of a frightened possessor. Formerly, I didn't lock my apartment or my car. I didn't lock up my money. I didn't cling to what I owned. To tell the truth, I was a little ashamed to own anything. Didn't I occasionally, in my social remarks, exclaim with conviction, property, gentlemen, is murder? Not being sufficiently big-hearted to share my wealth with a deserving poor man, I left it at the disposal of possible thieves, hoping thus to correct injustice by chance. Today, moreover, I possess nothing. Hence, I am not worried about my safety, but about myself and my presence of mind. I am also eager to block the door of the close of the universe of which I am the king, the pope, and the judge. By the way, will you please open that cupboard? Yes, look at that painting. Don't you recognize it? It is the just judges. That doesn't make you jump. Can it be that your culture has gaps? Yet if you read the papers, you would recall the theft in 1934 in the St. Bavon Cathedral of Ghent of one of the panels of the famous Van Eck altarpiece, The Adoration of the Lamb. That panel was called the Just Judges. It represented judges on horseback coming to adore the sacred animal. It was replaced by an excellent copy, for the original was never found. Well, here it is. No, I had nothing to do with it. A frequenter of Mexico City, you had a glimpse of him the other evening, sold it to the ape for a bottle one drunken evening. I first advised our friend to hang it in a place of honor, and for a long time, while they were being looked for throughout the world, our devout judges sat enthroned at Mexico City above the drunks and pimps. Then the ape, at my request, put it in custody here. He balked a little at doing so, but he got a fright when I explained the matter to him. Since then, these estimable magistrates form my sole company. At Mexico City, above the bar, you saw what a void they left. Why I did not return the panel? Ah, ah, you have a policeman's reflex, you do. Well, I'll answer you as I would the state's attorney. If it could ever occur to anyone that this painting had wound up in my room. First, because it belongs not to me, but to the proprietor of Mexico City, who deserves it as much as the Archbishop of Ghent. Secondly, because among all those who file by the adoration of the Lamb, no one could distinguish the copy from the original, and hence no one is wronged by my misconduct. Thirdly, because in this way I dominate. False judges are held up to the world's admiration, and I alone know the true ones. Fourth, because I thus have a chance of being sent to prison, an attractive idea in a way. Fifth, because those judges are on the way to meet the lamb, because there is no more lamb or innocence, and because the clever rascal who stole the panel was an instrument of the unknown justice that one ought not to thwart. Finally, because this way everything is in harmony. Justice being definitively separated from innocence, the latter on the cross and the former in the cupboard. I have the way clear to work according to my convictions. With a clear conscience, I can practice the difficult profession of judge penitent, in which I have set myself up after so many blighted hopes and contradictions. And now it is time, since you are leaving, for me to tell you what it is.
<clears throat> Allow me first to sit up so I can breathe more easily. Oh, how weak I am. Lock up my judges, please. As for the profession of judge penitent, I am practicing it at present. Ordinarily, my office are at Mexico City, but real vocations are carried beyond the place of work. Even in bed, even with a fever, I am functioning. Besides, one doesn't practice this profession, one breathes it constantly. Don't get the idea that I have talked to you at such length for five days just for the fun of it. No, I used to talk through my hat quite enough in the past. Now my words have a purpose. They have the purpose, obviously, of silencing the laughter, of avoiding judgment personally, though there is apparently no escape. Is not the great thing that stands in our way of escaping it the fact that we are the first to condemn ourselves? Therefore, it is essential to begin by extending the condemnation to all, without distinction, in order to thin it out at the start. No excuses ever, for anyone. That's my principle at the outset. I deny the good intention, the respectable mistake, the indiscretion, the extenuating circumstance. With me, there is no giving of absolution or blessing. Everything is simply totted up, and then, it comes to so much, you were an evildoer, a satyr, a congenital liar, a homosexual, an artist, etc. Just like that, just as flatly, in philosophy as in politics, I am for any theory that refuses to grant man innocence, and for any practice that treats him as guilty. You see in me, Trecher, an enlightened advocate of slavery. Without slavery, as a matter of fact, there is no definitive solution. I very soon realized that. Once upon a time, I was always talking of freedom. At breakfast, I used to spread it on my toast. I used to chew it all day long, and in company, my breath was delightfully redolent of freedom. With that key word, I would bludgeon whoever contradicted me. I made it serve my desires and my power. I used to whisper it in the bed of the ear of my sleeping mates, and it helped me to drop them. I would slip it. I'm getting excited and losing all sense of proportion. After all, I did on occasion make a more disinterested use of freedom, and even, just imagine my naivete, defended it two or three times, without of course going so far as to die for it, but nevertheless taking a few risks. I must be forgiven such rash acts. I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know that freedom is not a reward or a decoration that is celebrated with champagne, nor yet a gift, a box of dainties designed to make you lick your chops. Oh no, it's a chore on the contrary, and a long distance race, quite solitary and very exhausting. No champagne, no friends raising their glasses as they look at you affectionately, alone in a forbidding room, alone in the prisoner's box before the judges, and alone to decide in face of oneself or in the face of others' judgment. At the end of all freedom is a court sentence. That's why freedom is too heavy to bear, especially when you're down with a fever or are distressed or love nobody. Ah, mon cher, for anyone who is alone, without God and without a master, the weight of days is dreadful. Hence, one must choose a master, God being out of style. Besides, that word has lost his meaning. It's not worth the risk of shocking anyone. Take our moral philosophers, for instance, so serious, loving their neighbor and all the rest. Nothing distinguishes them from Christians, except that they don't preach in churches. 
What, in your opinion, keeps them from becoming converted? Respect, perhaps. Respect for men. Yes, human respect. They don't want to start a scandal, so they keep their feelings to themselves. For example, I knew an atheistic novelist who used to pray every night. That didn't stop anything. How he gave it to God in his books. What a dusting off, as someone or other would say. A militant free thinker to whom I spoke of this raised his hand with no evil intention, I assure you to heaven. You're telling me nothing new, that apostle sighed. They are all like that. According to him, 80% of our writers, if only they could avoid signing, would write and hail the name of God. But they sign according to him because they love themselves, and they hail nothing at all because they loathe themselves. Since, nevertheless, they cannot keep themselves from judging, they make up for it by moralizing. In short, their Satanism is virtuous, an odd epoch indeed. It's not at all surprising that minds are confused and that one of my friends, an atheist when he was a model husband, got converted when he became an, an adulterer. Ah, the little sneaks, play actors, hypocrites, and yet so touching. Believe me, they all are, even when they set fire to heaven. Whether they are atheists or churchgoers, Muscovites or Bostonians, all Christians from father to son. But it so happens that there is no more father, no more rule. They are free and hence have to shift for themselves. And since they don't want freedom or its judgments, they ask to be wrapped in the knuckles. They invent dreadful rules. They rush out to build piles of faggots to replace churches. Seven arolas, I tell you. But they believe solely in sin, never in grace. They think of it to be sure. Grace is what they want. Acceptance, surrender, happiness, and maybe, for they are sentimental too, betrothal, the virginal bride, the upright man, the organ music. Take me, for example, and I am not sentimental. Do you know what I used to dream of? A total love of the whole heart and body, day and night, in an uninterrupted embrace, sensual enjoyment and mental excitement, all lasting five years and ending in death. Alas. So, after all, for want of betrothal or uninterrupted love, it will be marriage, brutal marriage with power in the whip. The essential is that everything should become simple, as for the child, that every act should be ordered, that good and evil should be arbitrarily, hence obviously, pointed out. And I agree, however Sicilian and Javanese I may be, and not at all Christian, though I feel friendship for the first Christian of all, but on the bridges of Paris, I, too, learned that I was afraid of freedom. So hooray for the master, whoever he may be, to take the place of heaven's law. Our father, who art provisionally here, our guides, our delightfully severe masters, O oh, cruel and beloved leaders. In short, you see, the essential is to cease being free and to obey, in repentance, a greater rogue than oneself. When we are all guilty, that will be a democracy. Without counting, cher ami, that we must take revenge for having to die alone. Death is solitary, whereas slavery is collective. The others get theirs too, and at the same time as we, that's what counts. All together at last, but on our knees and heads bowed. Isn't it good likewise to live like the rest of the world, and for that doesn't the rest of the world have to be like me? Threat, dishonor, Police are the sacraments of the resemblance. Scorned, hunted down, compelled, I can then show what I am worth, 
enjoy what I am, be natural at last. This is why, Treshare, after having solemnly paid my respects to freedom, I decided on the slide that had to be handed over without delay to anyone who comes along. And every time I can, I preach in the Church of Mexico City. I invite the good people to submit to authority and humbly to solicit the comforts of slavery, even if I have to present it as true freedom. But I'm not being crazy. I'm well aware that slavery is not immediately realizable. It will be one of the blessings of the future, that's all. In the meantime, I must get along with the present and seek at least a provisional solution. Hence, I had to find another means of extending judgment to everybody in order to make it weigh less heavily on my own shoulders. I found the means. Open the window a little, please. It's frightfully hot. Not too much, for I'm cold also. My idea is both simple and fertile. How to get everyone involved in order to have the right to sit calmly on the outside of myself. Should I climb up to the pulpit like many of my illustrious contemporaries and curse humanity? Very dangerous, that is. One day, or one night, laughter bursts out without a warning. The judgment you are passing on others eventually snaps back in your face, causing some damage. And so what, you ask? Well, here's the stroke of genius. I discovered that while waiting for the masters with their tools, we should, like Copernicus, reverse the reasoning to win out. Inasmuch as one couldn't condemn others without immediately judging oneself, one had to overwhelm oneself to have the right to judge others. Inasmuch as every judge someday ends up as a penitent, one had to travel the road in the opposite direction and practice the profession of penitent to be able to end up as a judge. You follow me? Good. But to make myself even clearer, I'll tell you how I operate. First, I closed my law office, left Paris, traveled. I aim to set up under another name in some place where I shouldn't lack for a practice. There are many in the world, but chance, convenience, irony, and also the necessity for a certain mortification made me choose a capital of waters and fogs, girdled by canals, particularly crowded and visited by men from all corners of the earth. I set up my office in a bar in the sailor's quarter. The clientele of a port town is varied. The poor don't go into the luxury districts whereas eventually the gentlefolk always wind up at at least once, as you have seen in the disreputable places. I lie in waiting, particularly for the bourgeois, and the strang bourgeois at that. It's with him that I get my best results. Like a virtuoso with a rare violin, I draw my subtlest sounds from him. So I have been practicing my useful profession at Mexico City for some time. It consists, to begin with, as you know from experience, indulging in public confession as often as possible. I accuse myself up and down. It's not hard, for I now have acquired a memory. But let me point out that I don't accuse myself crudely, beating my breast. No, I navigate skillfully, multiplying distinctions and digressions too. In short, I adapt my words to my listener and lead him to go me one better. I mingle what concerns me and what concerns others. I choose the features we have in common, the experiences we have endured together, the failings we share, good form in other words, the man of the hour as he is rife in me and in others. With all that, I construct a portrait which is the image of all and no one. A mask in short, rather like those carnival masks which are both lifelike and stylized so that they make people say, why surely I've met him. When the portrait is finished, it is as this evening I show it with great sorrow, 
This, alas, is what I am. The prosecutor's charge is finished. But at the same time, the portrait I hold out to my contemporaries becomes a mirror, covered with ashes, tearing my hair, my face scored by clawing but with piercing eyes. I stand before all humanity, recapitulating my shames without losing sight of the effect I am producing and saying, I was the lowest of the low. Then, imperceptibly, I pass from the I to the we. When I get to, this is what we are, the trick has been played and I can tell them off. I am like them, to be sure. We are in the soup together. However, I have a superiority in that I know this, and it gives me the right to speak. You see the advantage, I am sure. The more I accuse myself, the more I have a right to judge you. Even better, I provoke you into judging yourself, and this relieves me of that much of the burden. Ah, mon cher, we are odd, wretched creatures, and if we merely look back over our lives, there's no lack of occasions to amuse and horrify ourselves. Just try, I shall listen, you may be sure, to your own confession with a great feeling of fraternity. Don't laugh. Yes, you are a difficult client, I saw that at once, but you'll come to it inevitably. Most of the others are more sentimental than intelligent. They are disconcerted at once. With the intelligent ones, it takes time. It is enough to explain the method fully to them. They don't forget it. They reflect. Sooner or later, half as a game and half out of emotional upset, they give up and tell all, you are not only intelligent, you look polished by use. Admit, however, that today you feel less pleased with yourself than you felt five days ago. Now I shall wait for you to write me or come back. For you will come back, I am sure. You'll find me unchanged. And why should I change, since I have found the happiness that suits me? I have accepted duplicity instead of being upset about it. On the contrary, I have settled it and found there the comfort I was looking for throughout life. I was wrong, after all, to tell you that the essential was to avoid judgment. The essential is being able to permit oneself everything, even if, from time to time, one has to profess vociferously one's own infamy. I permit myself everything again, and without the laughter this time. I haven't changed my way of life. I continue to love myself and make use of others. Only the confession of my crimes allows me to begin again, lighter in heart, and to taste a double enjoyment, first of my nature and secondly of a charming repentance. Since finding my solution, I yield to everything, to women, to pride, to boredom, to resentment, and even to the fever that I feel delightfully rising at this moment. I dominate at last, but forever. Once more, I have found a height to which I am the only one to climb and from which I can judge everybody. At long intervals on a really beautiful night, I occasionally hear a distant laugh, and again I doubt. But quickly I crush everything, people and things, under the weight of my own infirmity and at once I perk up. So I shall await your respects at Mexico City as long as necessary. But remove this blanket, I want to breathe. You will come, won't you? I'll show you the details of my technique, for I feel a sort of affection for you. You will see me teaching them night after night that they are vile. This very evening, moreover, I shall resume. I can't do it without it, or deny myself these moments when one of them collapses with the help of alcohol, and beats his breast. Then I grow taller, Treshare. I grow taller, 
I breathe freely. I am on the mountain. The plain stretches before my eyes. How intoxicating to feel like God, the Father, and to hand out definitive testimonials of bad character and habits. I sit enthroned among my bad angels at the summit of the Dutch heaven, and I watch ascending towards me as they issue from the fogs in the water the multitude of the last judgment. They rise slowly. I already see the first of them arriving. On his bewildered face, half hidden by his hand, I read the melancholy of the common condition and the despair of not being able to escape it. And as for me, I pity without absolving. I understand without forgiving. And above all, I feel at last that I am being adored. Yes, I am moving about. How could I remain in bed like a good patient? I must be higher than you, and my thoughts lift me up. Such nights, or such mornings rather, for the fall occurs at dawn. I go out and walk briskly along the canals. In the livid sky, the layers of feathers become thinner. The doves move a little higher, and above the roof, a rosy light announces a new day of my creation. On the dam rack, the first streetcar sounds its bell in the damp air and marks the awakening of life at the extremity of this Europe where, at the same moment, hundreds of millions of men, my subjects, painfully slip out of bed, a bitter taste in their mouths, to go to a joyless work. Then, soaring over this whole continent which is under my sway without knowing it, drinking in the absinthe-colored light of breaking day, intoxicated with evil words, I am happy. I am happy, I tell you. I won't let you think I am not happy. I am happy unto death. O oh, sun, beaches, and the islands in the path of the trade winds, youth whose memory drives one to despair. I'm going back to bed, forgive me. I fear I got woke up, yet I'm not weeping. At times one wanders, down in the facts, even when one has discovered the secrets of the good life. To be sure, my solution is not the ideal. But when you don't like your own life, when you don't know that you must change lives, and you don't have any choice, do you? What can one do to become one another? Impossible. One would have to cease being anyone, forget oneself or someone else at least once. But how? Don't bear down too hard on me. I'm like that old beggar who wouldn't let go of my hands one day on a cafe terrace. Oh, sir, he said. It's not just that I am no good, but you lose track of the light. Yes, we have lost track of the light, the mornings, the holy innocence of those who forgive themselves. Look, it's snowing. Oh, I must go out. Amsterdam asleep in the white night, the dark jade canals under the little snow-covered bridges, the empty streets, my muffled steps. There will be purity, even if fleeting, before tomorrow's mud. See the huge flakes drifting against the window panes. It must be the doves, surely. They finally make up their minds to come down, the little deers. They are covering the waters and the roofs with a thick layer of feathers. They are fluttering at every window. What an invasion. Let's hope they are bringing good news. Everyone will be saved, eh? And not only the elect. Possessions and hardships will be shared, and you, for example, from today on, you will sleep every night on the ground for me. The whole shooting match, eh? Come now. Admit that you would be flabbergasted if a chariot came down from heaven to carry me off, or if the snow suddenly caught fire. You don't believe it? Nor do I. But I still must go out. All right, all right, I'll be quiet. Don't get upset. Don't take my emotional outbursts or my ravings too seriously. They are controlled. Say now that you are going to talk to me about yourself. 
I shall find out whether or not one of the objectives of my absorbing confession is achieved. I always hope, in fact, that my interlocutor will be a policeman and that he will arrest me for the theft of the last judges. For the rest, am I right? No one can arrest me. But as for that theft, it falls within the provisions of the law, and I have arranged everything so as to make myself an accomplice. I am harboring that painting and showing it to whoever wants to see it. You would arrest me then. That would be a good beginning. Perhaps the rest would be taken care of subsequently. I would be decapitated, for instance, and I'd have no more fear of death. I'd be saved. Above all, the gathered crowd, you would hold up my still warm head so that they could recognize themselves in it, and I could again dominate, an exemplar, and I would be consummated. I should have brought to a close, unseen and unknown, my career as a false prophet, crying in the wilderness and refusing to come forth. But of course you are not a policeman. That would be too easy. What? Ah, I suspected as much, you see. That strange affection I felt for you had sense to it then. In Paris, you practiced the noble profession of a lawyer. I sensed that we were of the same species. Are we not all alike, constantly talking and to no one, forever up against the same questions, although we know the answers in advance? Then please tell me what happened to you one night on the keys of the Sienne and how you managed never to risk your life. You yourself utter the words that for years have never ceased echoing through my nights and that I shall at last say through your mouth. Oh, young woman, throw yourself into the water again so that I may a second time have the chance of saving both of us. A second time, eh? What a risky suggestion. Just suppose, cher maître, that we should be taken literally. We have to go through with it. Brr, the water's so cold. But let's not worry. It's too late now. It will always be too late. Fortunately. Alright, so we did it. We made it through <laughs> we made it through the whole book. Um, that was The Fall by Albert Camus. And yeah, like I said, thank you to everyone who decided to uh, to listen along. I really, really enjoyed that. Totally different experience for me to be reading a book aloud like that. Um, and yeah, you pick up on different things when you decide to read something out loud versus reading it on your head. Um, there are certain elements where you linger a little bit more there are things that you catch that you might otherwise have skimmed over when you are just reading in your head so just really really interesting for me to sit here and read this aloud to you now the last chapter i think is one of my absolute favorites because it just all gets tied up in a bow and all of a sudden like you just when you think you've got everything figured out about jean clements what he's about, why he acts the way that he acts. This final chapter just puts a whole nother layer to it. Um, <laughs> and there's so much to talk about. There's so much to get into, and I don't know if I'll go into every single thought that I have. But the first thing that maybe uh, is interesting to talk about is the fact that you find out here that this is not the first time he has done this. The anonymous character here is one of many, many a character who has stumbled in the Mexico City bar and has gone on this six-day trip with Jean Clements. 
So what we're hearing from Jean Clements is, in a way, incredibly rehearsed. Now, it might seem like the way that he talks is so sporadic and spontaneous and all over the fucking place, but he comes out and you realize he's done this time and time again, and so much of what he's saying is exactly rehearsed. Um, and that just adds a whole nother layer. This is not his first confession. This is not him laying his life out raw in front of someone for the first time. This is a calculated move. This is something that he is doing again to, to come back to his motives. He wants to dominate. This is one of his modes of dominating people is taking them on this six-day trip and making them realize something not about him, but making them realize something about themselves. And through that realization, he has then dominated them in a way. And that's really fascinating. The Mexico City bar, the circles of hell, and in the middle of those circles of hell, who do you find but this man, Jean Clements, who is a professional judge penitent who takes particularly bourgeois people, as he himself says, on this six-day trip, making them question everything. And he makes them question everything not by having them examine their own lives or having them examine their own mistakes or sins or anything. All that he does is he examines his own life, and his own life leads to the realization of all these people, the, all these bourgeois people, their own faults. And so what an interesting method uh, uh, in order for us to make, or in order for Jean Clements to make us realize something. And we are that person. We are the person reading the book, being subjected to Jean Clements's rehearsed, calculated methods. We are becoming privy to the mistakes he has made, the flaws in his life, but none of it's so that we can understand Jean Clements any better at all. It's all so that we can understand ourselves more and on a deeper level um, and understand looking back in our own lives where the major faults and tragic flaws were. Now, there's this amazing quote at the end of the book, which, which really sums up Jean Clements' uh, motives here, where he says, the prosecutor's charge is finished, but at the same time, the portrait I hold out to my contemporaries becomes a mirror. And so this is exactly what I'm talking about. This is his ultimate goal, is through his own confessions, he is making other people realize, oh, shit, yeah, wow, what about if I look at my life and I look at it as raw and bare in the way that Jean Clements does? Would I come up with the same kinds of content? Would I expose myself as equally, as cunning, manipulative, um, uncovering false motives? Would I come to the same conclusions if I did as deep of a dive on my own life as Jean Clements did on his? And that's an interesting question. That's the question for each and every one of us readers who reads this book. And I don't know, maybe that's why I read it every single year is I always feel like this is a book that keeps me in check. It keeps me in check for so many reasons. Um, it keeps me in check where it doesn't matter how good things are going. Uh, you need to have good motives and good intentions behind what you're doing. And you don't want to be this Jean Clement's character who's might be on the external outside, this incredibly successful, social, kind, helpful person, but on the inside, he's actually this strange, manipulative, like 
dominating person. I read this book all the time so that I can make sure not to become that. This book is a great example of uh, a counter example of what I want to be. I want to make sure that the external is as closely aligned with the internal as possible. And obviously one thing that comes out in this final chapter is the the fall here is so confirmed. It's confirmed earlier in the book too, but the fall in the physical non-metaphorical sense is the woman on the bridge. The This is the singular defining event where the woman on the bridge, like Jean Clements, cannot let this go. This is such a pivotal turning point in his life, and it doesn't matter what he does, fighting for the French resistance, becoming a pope, um, confessing all of his sins, like becoming a judge penitent, it doesn't matter what he does, he cannot escape this fall of the woman. And again, I'm going to read another quote. This is probably my favorite quote from the whole book. Um, but it's just unbelievable when I read it. Like it says, Oh, young woman, throw yourself into the water again so that I may a second time have the chance of saving both of us. And it's an one is so beautifully worded. Oh, young woman, throw yourself into the water again so that I may a second time have the chance of saving both of us. He's of course like, so this is the fall. This is the the physical fall that leads to the kind of m- metaphorical fall of Jean Clements and his character and his realization of all of the faults of himself. That is the kind of metaphorical fall as we watch the fall from grace of Jean Clements throughout this entire book. And if he wants to get one thing back, it's that. In order to save himself, he wants to go back and have saved this woman. Now... One of the things that I do think about the book, and I thought this a lot as we got about to the end of chapter five, but now I'm not so sure about this interpretation, but I'm going to say it anyways, and that is that Jean Clements, yes, we view his fall from grace. The metaphorical fall of Jean Clements' character takes place in this book through his confessions. That's perfectly clear, I think, to all of us, but... The fall has already happened. Jean Clements has already had his fall from grace before the start of the book. Um, and now his version of coming to grips with that is through confession. Confession, he, again, uses all his religious terminology. By confessing, he is somehow seeing himself becoming a little bit closer to God, um, whatever you define God as. And so how interesting that the book is called The Fall, and you do see the metaphorical fall from grace, But throughout the course of the actual novel, from the beginning of the book where he doesn't confess to the end of the book where he lays it all bare, everything is on the table, and he confesses his entire life, that brings him closer to God, not farther away. So you think that the course of the book is actually an ascension where, you know, he doesn't you know, make it all better, but he does take one step closer to God and closer to truth by deciding to not let truth die, but instead speak it aloud, confess to the world, and in order to bring himself closer. That, to me, is an ascension. That's what I kept thinking about at the end of the fifth chapter. But I think that some of that interpretation really falters when you consider the fact that he's 
doing this to so many different people. This is his rinse and repeat method of confessing. So Jess is with everything he does from helping uh, criminals via his criminal defense, helping blind people across the street, um, to even confessing to become closer to God. It's all a play. It's all a cynical, manipulative play. Um, He tips his hat to the blind person and... He doesn't really care about the the grieving mother of the criminal who he's defending. And he also doesn't really care that much about his confession because he does it to so many people in order to bring them down with him. And so it's not so valiant. I take back a lot of the interpretation I had at the end of the fifth chapter when you understand this critical piece at the end of the book where you find out that this is not some grand coming to God moment for Jean Clements, but this is just another one of his calculated manipulative plays, um, rinsing and repeating this confession in order to dominate uh, uh, people who come into the bar. And so in a way, he hasn't really changed at all, even though he talks about his, (laughs) over the course of five days, he talks about his growth as a person, but he still falls prey to the exact same cynical things the same way that he tips his hat to the blind man after helping him cross the street he can't even do an honest confession for a confession's sake it's got to be this manipulative play and so again another reason why this is a great book to read because um jean clements might think that he's holding up a mirror to you but you can reject that image you can you don't have to be a jean clements you can instead Make sure your motives are good. Make sure your intentions are in line with truth and justice. And that can be enough. You don't have to have a manipulative under-the-surface play with everything. There's so much to talk about. I could probably ramble endlessly. But to make it kind of concise at the end here, I think I want to give real praise to Albert Camus, who has written a really difficult book. This is still a book that I don't fully understand. But this is a book that I can read and maybe find something new every time. The writing style, some of the way that the sentences are so poetically put together, and they're such a pleasure to read out loud. Um, That really speaks to the book, and that's one of the major reasons why I wanted to read it here. So full props to Albert Camus and the writing style here, even though the content and the understanding of the book is incredibly difficult. It's still really fun to read. Um, Other takeaways, I think I've kind of said everything that I want to say, but I do plan on doing this again. This was a really interesting audio experience for me. And yeah, I think next time it will be a simpler book. It will be a book that might be easier to follow in terms of a narrative plot. But this was an interesting experiment. I'm excited to see what you guys think now that it's all over. So feel free to send me an email with your thoughts or if I've completely missed something from the book or if I've totally skipped over something vitally important and you're yelling at the the podcast right now, like, why are you not talking about this? Please let me know. But otherwise, thank you so much for coming along for this ride. It's been amazing. And yeah, I really look forward to the next one. So thanks so much, guys. Uh, Until next time.